On this Sunday before Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I am aware of two significant, though also painful, anniversaries that feel important to name aloud. This year, 2019, is the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans arriving in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. This year is also the 100th anniversary of the Red Summer of 1919, when there was a sharp spike in white people violently targeting people of color, African Americans in particular, resulting in hundreds of deaths over just a few months. I invite us to allow our awareness of these historic reminders to open our hearts and, more importantly, to recommit our spirits to turning King's dreams into deeds. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and if King were alive today, he would be celebrating his 90th birthday. He was only 39 years old when he was assassinated. That's one year younger than I am standing before you today. His prophetic activism to build a global beloved community ended tragically early. And although the initial focus of Dr. King's dream was that his children might one day live in a nation where they were judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, as Nicole shared with us earlier and with the children, King soon began dreaming of a much grander, more inclusive vision of beloved community, of peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all. But in contrast to Dr. King's global vision of a beloved community, the story of the civil rights movement and of Dr. King's legacy are often told in an oversimplified way. That's certainly how I learned them growing up in South Carolina. They're told nostalgically of a heroic cast of characters, a narrow geographic focus, and a short time frame from 1954 to 1968 at the most. This romantic version of history is too narrow. If racism is only a problem in the South and only in the past, then we, in the present, are off the hook. We can celebrate people who are no longer alive to point out to us how problems today are quite parallel to problems back then. When Dr. King preached his I Have a Dream speech in 1963 from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, Um, Too many of us have been taught that that dream was fulfilled with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Those two legislative victories did mark the end of the decade-long first phase of the Civil Rights Movement, but that's not the end of the story, and MLK Day is about much more than looking back in gratitude for a job well done, although that is part of what it's for. That decade-long span from the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955 to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, that doesn't represent the beginning and the end, but merely one significant and inspirational chapter. In the wake of the Voting Rights Act, the Watts riots or the Watts uprisings, depending on who you talk to, on August 11, 1965, marked the beginning of a new radical black freedom struggle that was about more than minimally decent treatment for black Americans. This new phase aimed for genuine equality. 
1965 was a major turning point, and for that reason, I'm grateful that the planning team of tomorrow's uh, annual MLK Community Potluck, it'll be at Trinity Methodist in Frederick, there's more information in your order of service. When I agreed to do to be the respondent tomorrow, I didn't know that uh, what speech they were going to pick, but I was pleased to see that they picked a speech after 1965. Um, I think that's important. But I also want to emphasize that that more radical post-1965 king, that wasn't some radical disjuncture. Rather, it was a quite natural trajectory and outgrowth of how King was already headed. After all, the full name of the event at which King delivered that 1963 I Have a Dream speech was not, as it's typically called, the March on Washington. It was the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. Economic justice was a long-time emphasis for King, or as King said near the beginning of his famous 1967 um, Beyond Vietnam sermon against the military-industrial complex, he said, the path from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, that church in Montgomery, Alabama, where I began my pastorate, it leads clearly to this sanctuary tonight, that the seeds had been there all along. What King called the triple threats that most consistently hold us back from actually building the beloved community, the triple threats of racism, materialism, and militarism. Those were present all along too, not just new after 1965, though King did emphasize them more boldly and equally after 65. And because Dr. King's I Have a Dream is so beloved for just a few famous quotes and so rarely revisited in full, let me say just a little more along those lines about that famous speech. The original title was not I Have a Dream. It was Normalcy Never Again. And it didn't include that famous final section. There was nothing about the dream originally in his manuscript that he brought to the podium that day. Indeed, Dr. King had preached the first 17 minutes about the nightmare that 100 years after abolition, African Americans were still not free because of the Jim Crow laws. But people who had heard Dr. King speak many times knew that he had various stock sermons that he was constantly revising and improvising as the Spirit moved him, and movement veterans would cheer as soon as he got rolling on one, much like a singer performing a medley of their favorite hits. And I Have a Dream was one of those three years before the March on Washington. And as some of you likely know, it wasn't some otherworldly spirit who prompted Dr. King that day who felt like, oh, he's looking like he's moving to an ending, and I'm not sure this should be over yet. The gospel singer Mahalia Jackson said from the crowd, as Megan said earlier, she said, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And so he put aside his manuscript. He did, and history was made. Let me add one more layer to that 1963 day. Looking back today, when we have an official Martin Luther King Jr. Day, when we know that a 30-foot-tall statue of Dr. King stands on the Tidal Basin uh, in Washington, D.C., it can be difficult to appreciate how radical he was, what a threat to an unjust status quo he was both then and now. As one commentator has written, let us not forget that when Dr. King took the podium on August 28, 1963, the Department of Justice was watching. Fearing that someone might hijack the microphone to make inflammatory statements, the Kennedy Department of Justice had come up with a plan to silence the speaker, just in case. 
In such an um, eventuality, an official was seated next to the sound system, holding a recording, ironically, of that same Mahalia Jackson, of her singing, we have the whole, he's got the whole world in his hands. So ironically, you know, sort of co-opting, ready to co-opt Jackson as well as of religion, really, just to make it about, oh, it's just about God's in control, you don't need to do anything, right? Uh, and that was what they planned to play, to placate the crowd if needed. Relatively few people know or recall that the Kennedy administration tried to convince organizers to call off the, Washington, the March on Washington. The FBI tried to dissuade people from coming. Racist senators publicly tried to discredit the leaders. Twice as many Americans had an unfavorable view of the march as had a favorable one. That was all the pre-1965 king. Before his death, king was well on the way to being a pariah in this country. In 1966, twice as many Americans had an unfavorable opinion of him as had a favorable one. In 1967, Life magazine branded that speech at Riverside Church beyond Vietnam. They called it demagogic slander and a script for Radio Hanoi. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm grateful that MLK Day exists as an institutionalized annual reminder to reflect on King's legacy, but it's important for us to remember the fullness of his dream, uh, that our nation, of what our nation might become if we were to truly live into our founding promises of life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness, not merely for some, but for all. And as we reflect on how King's dream and legacy can inspire our own work for peace and justice today, it can also be helpful to remember just how young King was when he took on the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955. If you think, you know, I could never do what King did. And, you know, you you have to think about what are your gifts. But for King, let's remember, he was 26 years old when he took on the leadership of the Montgomery bus boycott. He had been a pastor slightly more than a year, and his activist record was very recent and extremely short. What had he been doing prior to that point? He'd been up in Boston getting his Ph.D., right? It's also significant to remind ourselves on this day before King Day that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did not emerge out of nowhere. He was strongly influenced by prophetic black church Christianity, by prophetic liberal Christianity, by prophetic Gandhian nonviolence, by prophetic American civil religion. In the words of religion scholar Gary Dorian, without the black social gospel, King would not have known what to say when history called on December 3rd, 1955, two days after Mrs. Parks refused to give up her seat. And so the question turns to us of who are we letting influence us? Who are we reading? Who are we listening to? Who are we building relationships with so that when history calls on us, we will know what to say and what to do? And be assured, history is calling us in this season of our country's life. That question is part of why I started the Readings for Resistance and Resilience series here at UUCF in the summer of 2017. We began by reading and discussing George Orwell's 1984, 
Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale and Octavia Butler's parable, The Talents. That last of those is probably the least well-known and maybe the most important. That's the book in which Octavia um, very prophetically writes about um, a leader becoming president in this country on the platform of making America great again. It's a um, profound and disturbing book. Uh, my wife, who's an English professor, called those three books the most depressing list of beach reading I've ever heard. Uh, she wasn't wrong, though I think those of you who were here and participated in one or more of those book discussions was actually quite helpful and inspiring in many ways. That series is continuing. We're in the middle of a year-long study of an anthology of Dr. King's writings called The Radical King. We had uh, the most recent of those in the middle hour just before this service. There'll be another one next month and continuing on through May. As we continue through this volume, it is ever more clear that at its best, King Day is not about merely honoring King's work in the past. It is about reflecting on the past and the present in conversation, and most importantly, about recommitting to the work King started to bend the arc of history toward justice. It's not just something that's going to happen on its own, I think. Um, if any of you watched the news last night or saw the post this morning, you probably saw about the uh, the right to life and the indigenous people's rally happening at the same time and these young people from uh, high school in Kentucky uh, rudely confronting a Native American elder. Uh, it's just the most recent example. Charlottesville was another, and all the young faces carrying tiki torches there. That this isn't just something that people generations are going to die off, and this problem is going to be solved. There, this is something we have to actively dismantle. It's also clear to me that the person most powerfully carrying forward King's dream today is the Reverend Dr. William Barber. Just as Dr. King first came to prominence through his leadership in the Montgomery bus boycotts, Barber first became known as leader of the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina, working on the state level against people who would dismantle the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and all it represents. Uh, Dr. Barber is now carrying on the nationwide project that King did not live long enough to complete through the new Poor People's Campaign. Considering the relevance of Dr. King's dream today, I also try to keep in mind part of what it means that King was killed in 1968. He died before the Stonewall Uprising of 1969 for LGBT rights. He died before the first Earth Day in 1970. He died before second wave feminism in the 70s. So None of those things are a part of King's writings. Uh, I think Megan spoke about some of that really helpfully in the spoken meditation. Uh, but I'm encouraged to see the new Poor People's Campaign accounting for all of those social movements and more. The 21st Century Poor People's Campaign calls itself a national call for uh, moral revival to challenge the systemic evils. First, you'll hear them name those three triple threats to beloved community that King named, systemic racism, poverty, and the war economy. And then they add two more, um, ecological devastation. And this, I think it's left off sometimes, but is really important, our nation's distorted morality, that we've we're got our values in the wrong place. I encourage you to learn more about the Poor People's Campaign, to get involved, as I know quite a few of you already have. If you're wondering what Dr. King would be saying if he were alive today to have celebrated his 90th birthday, which was actually back on the 15th, 
I, I think Dr. Barber is saying something pretty close to what King would be saying. So go home today, look up on Google Video or uh, Google uh, Dr. Barber's, uh, spend a little time listening to his powerful words. In a future year, in the same way that we're currently reading through the Radical King, we'll likely have a congregational book study in which we read through a collection of Dr. Barber's speeches published just a few months ago called Revive Us Again. But my current plan for the next congregational year, that might be in two years. Go ahead and read it in the meantime. Don't wait on me. Uh, I try to pace you, though, uh, that uh, probably next year we'll have us read through a classic anthology of called The Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. Uh, for now, on this eve of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I'll give the final words to Dr. Barber in which he points beyond both King and himself to the work we must do together to build the beloved community. When we remember the civil rights movement, leaders like Dr. King and Mrs. Parks help us glimpse the beauty of the beloved community. They help us glimpse what is possible, and their deep commitment to the ideals of the American Revolution um, guide us today. But in Barber's words, let us remember that Martin and Rosa, they are not coming back to lead a moral revival today. Dorothy Day, Bayard Rustin, Ella Baker, Septima Clark, Cesar Chavez, they carried the torch in their day, but they are not coming back. It's our time now. It's our time to make a way out of no way to, in the words of the poet Langston Hughes, to realize that it's not about making America great again. That's not Hughes. Uh, It's about the America that has never been, the America that has never been America to me, but the America that might still be. Say one more quick thing. Uh, To me, one of the most pernicious um, myths that keeps being perpetuated around King's dream is that he wanted us to be colorblind in some simplistic way of like, I don't see race, so, you know, I can't notice that people of color are treated differently than white people, right? That's not what King meant when he said, I wanted my children to be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. He wanted that, but that didn't mean he wanted you to be simplistically colorblind. Um, the, I get this from Dr. Cornell West um, from the Ford of Michelle Alexander's really important book, The New Jim Crow. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so or watch the Netflix documentary 13th by the director Ava DuVernay, who also directed Selma. Um, West, I think, says really helpfully, he says, King didn't call us to be colorblind to each other. He called us to be lovestruck with each other in the midst of our differences, right? Not colorblind, but love-struck. So as you continue your journey, continue your journey in love. Care for one another. Care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. As you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time of place, of hope, of love, or peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.